I am Plant on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Doug McLean joins me now, the former NHL coach, general manager, team president and broadcaster, has just published a highly readable, insightful and fun book, Draft Day, How Hockey Teams Pick Winners or Get Left Behind. He provides marvelous insight about the draft process in hockey and how critical it is for the foundation of a championship team. It's a roll of the dice at times, uh, so a lot of thought and preparation goes into the scouting as well as uh, interviews. There's the uh, metrics angle to all of this, too. And I'll ask Mr. McLean about the relationship between the scouts and the analytics folks. The book is replete with anecdotes that will be fun for a hockey fan and will be uh, interesting for non-hockey fans alike because there's, uh, they're all great lessons in leadership. Doug McLean was president uh, and general manager of the NHL Columbus Blue Jackets and was, and, and was the head coach of the Florida Panthers. He also served in the Detroit uh, Red Wings, St. Louis Blues, and Washington Capitals organizations. He then went uh, on to a broadcasting career for Sportsnet, co-hosting the popular Hockey Central at noon on the radio and the Hockey Central television broadcast. He divides his time between his native Prince Edward Island and Florida, the book is written with Scott Morrison and is published by Simon & Schuster. We talked yesterday with Doug joining me from Delray Beach, Florida. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Doug McLean. Mr. McLean, good morning. How are you? Pretty good yourself. Great. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Uh, um, I'm not a, a, a big hockey fan. I mean, I follow it when I read the paper and the sort, and I know what's going on here in Vancouver. Um, yeah. But the thing that struck me as I was reading the book, how engaging the book is, and, and how even if you're not a hockey fan, um, there are a lot of great stories in here. Did you have a lot of fun writing this? Uh, you know what? It was really interesting. I, I When I left Sportsnet, I got a call from Simon & Schuster about doing a book, and I really didn't want to do it. I didn't have a lot of interest. And then they... They phoned me back and said they'd like to talk to me about doing a book about the draft. And I, then I became intrigued. You know, I, I, um, I thought, well, that's kind of an interesting slant. So I, I've got to tell you, Scott Morrison did it with me. He was my ghostwriter. We had, we had a lot of fun writing it because there was, like you said, so many stories. And, you know, we went back to the history of the draft and then we talked about modern day and, you know, some things from the past. So it, it really was a lot of work, but a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, there have been some changes to, to how the, not next year, but the, the year after, I guess, in, in how the draft will be conducted. Um, I, I guess, are they going back to the, the, the way they did it during the, the pandemic, sort of the virtual way? Yeah, that's what's going on. You know, it's, there's been a lot of discussion this, on this the last couple of years. It's really picked up the last year since a couple of the GMs had mentioned they'd like to do it, you know, from their home offices. This, this is, this is NBA, NFL style draft, which, you know, uh, you know, if, if the NFL and NBA do it, then Gary Bettman has to do it. So I'm not a big fan of it. I, I love the, you know, I, I recall, uh, you know, the draft in Vancouver, for instance, and, and it was a ball to be in the city of Vancouver or last year at the draft in Montreal and and see the excitement that goes on in the cities and the way the fans engage. So I, I, I'm kind of disappointed, but, you know, I, I can, the GMs would rather have their war rooms, you know, in their hometowns, which I can understand as well. So it, it's a change, but I don't, I don't, 
I don't think it's for the better, really. Yeah, you describe in the book what it's like getting to a city like Montreal or Vancouver yeah. Uh, yeah. the week before the draft, say, and and what the draft, uh, the war room looks like, and um, um, how a GM prepares. Um, it, it's it's very exciting. And the one thing that I wanted to ask: there's um, a moment in the book where you, where you talk about seeing um, the dad of a player who you knew, and his son, I guess, was up for the draft that year, um, and. You picked him, I guess, in the eighth round, um, yeah. and you say that you're. Was that one of the times where you let your emotions say get to you, and 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 because you do feel bad when you're sitting there and you see all these these kids in the stands with their parents who haven't been drafted, right? Well, it, it really is something that did bother me, to be quite honest, because at every draft, and I was involved in 24 drafts in my career, and. I saw it every draft, and I the, the one that that you mentioned in the book that we talk about in the book is is Rick Bonus's son. Rick Bonus is the head coach of the Winnipeg Jets, and uh, you know I've known Rick forever, and we were friends from the time we you know in junior hockey. And uh, I saw he and his son Ryan sitting through seven rounds of the draft, and I thought, geez, I you know I, I it was driving me crazy. So I asked my guys what. What Ryan was like as a player, they said, "Hey, he's a, he's a really good player, character kid." And I said, "Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna use the seventh round pick to to take Ryan Bonus." <laughs> but it's funny, Ryan didn't play in the NHL. He played a little bit in the minors, but he went on to university. And today, he's the assistant general manager of the Ottawa Senators. And so, you know, I'm really proud of him. And I gotta I got a nice note from Ryan after he read the book, saying, you know, it was one of the greatest days of his life being drafted by us. And and then he said he really enjoyed the section in the book about him. So it was kind of fun to, to draft him. And, to, you know, Rick and I, Rick has always appreciated it ever since the day we did it. And so it's kind of fun to see, yeah. you know, but you're right. You, it is not a fun part of the draft. And so many kids leave devastated, disappointed, but, uh, you know, as as Marty St. Louis, we quoted Marty in the book. Uh, Marty won the Stanley Cups, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the Con Smythe MVP of the playoffs, and was never drafted. So happens to lots of guys. And so, as you just said a moment ago, as the GM, you you have, I guess, the final say as to, to who will get picked. Do you do you run that by the owner say before you make the actual pick? No, you don't run the. Uh, the draft by the owner. Uh, he evaluates it after about four years' time when he sees whether the players play or not. Yeah. But no, the owner's really not involved in the draft, uh, at least he, not any team I was involved with. In the half a dozen or so teams I was involved with, the owner was never involved in the draft. I, I don't think they are really today because the, if the truth is known about the draft, it's the director of amateur scouting, it's the chief scout that is really the guy that makes the call on the draft. And the GM is involved in the first pick, but really after that, it's the director of amateur and the scouts that really run the draft. The GM gets blamed for the picks, and he gets credit for all the great ones, but it's really <laughs> the scouts who, who make the decision, to be quite honest. How, how long after not picking Andrzej Kopitar um, did people in Columbus tell you that you'd made a mistake? Uh, what year was that draft? I forget. Now. 05, I think. Whatever, 
well, whatever it was, it's been every month since then. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I picked him. I had the sixth pick of that draft, and I took uh, Vancouverite Gilbert Brule. But let's not forget your Vancouver Canucks had the opportunity to take Kopitar at 10 as well, <laughs> and they didn't take him. So there was a lot of teams that take on take Kopitar. In other words, it wasn't just me, but I have taken a ton of heat over that pick, uh, you know, for forever. And I still, as Brian Burke told me, Doug, not one of us had him in the top ten. So why do you keep talking about it? Well, I keep talking about it because I keep getting ripped about it in Columbus. <laughs> Even to this day, I do. <laughs> but when you went back recently, was it a year ago for, for um, the, the Rick Nash retiring? Yeah. yeah, you got a warm reception there, didn't you? The fans were really good. And I, you know what? I didn't know what to expect because the media had been really vicious, to be quite honest. It's it kind of bizarre, you know, it, but... I, you know, I, I really did get a, a nice reception and I really appreciate it. And, uh, it was a great, it was a great family weekend. My, my kids both, uh, you know, they both, we all went to Columbus when the kids were young. We were there 11 years. We started the franchise and, and it was a great family weekend for all of us to go back and honor Rick and, uh, and to spend the, a weekend in the city and in the building that we actually built. I mean, yeah. when I got there, there was a, gravel on the ground where the building was going to be and the franchise was just awarded so columbus has always been a special place for our family uh, you, you talked a moment ago about the blame that, that a gm gets um you talk in the book about buyouts buying out a player's contract and, and we've had to contend with that here in in recent months with a certain contract in vancouver um yeah. what is it like to make the call to to the person you're buying out the player because this has great consequences on their career. You talk in the book about somebody who you bought out and yeah. and who afterwards uh, the career didn't really um, nothing really much happened yeah. and and then yeah. the second call I guess is the owner. How how tough is that call? You know what? It wasn't fun and and today it's a joke. I, I watch what goes on. Guys get bought out for five, ten, fifteen, twenty million dollars, and I'm just. I just shake my head. Now, it's done today as it was a little bit when I, I bought out Andrew Castles, who was a former Vancouver Canuck. Actually, he was a star in Vancouver and just a quality guy. And it was one year at $950,000, and I bought him out. I think it was two-thirds of that for 700000 or something. And, you know, you look at the players today, one player was bought out in Philadelphia for $23 million, like seriously. Mm-hmm. I made the call over $700,000 buyout, a contract for nine fifty, and my owner snapped. He said, you know, that's a waste of money. And I'm thinking, uh, well, thank God he's not dealing with today's buyout because he would lose <laughs> his – he's passed away since. But, uh, you know, it, he was so mad about that. It was unbelievable. So – it's just, and, and it, but you know, the owner's one thing. You can always deal with your owner, and there are a lot of tough calls. But the the bigger one was phoning the player and telling them that you're buying them out. It, it's a devastating situation because they don't know what's going to take place after that. Some guys do better when they get bought out. They get their buyout money, and then they get a new contract with another team, 
Andrew got another contract, but it was only for a year with Washington, and it didn't. It, it basically ended his career, and he was a, a quality, quality person. And uh, I didn't like making those calls. It's like when you trade a player, you know, you, you phone to tell him he's traded. Some guys are excited, but a lot of guys are pretty disappointed. So those are the calls. You know, all the tough calls as a GM, and I talk about it in the book, whether it's firing a coach or or trading a player or buying out a player, those are all those are all really tough calls, to say the least. This goes into spending. Um, we um, here in Vancouver, I guess uh, we've seen the management here um, uh, say uh, trade draft picks to get good players right away, or, or spend to win. Does spending a lot of money does it does it work? Does it help fi- fix a mistake, say that a, that a general manager makes, or even a previous one, say? Well, you know what, it, it really has changed because now everybody's basically allowed to spend the same amount of money with the cap, which this year is like eighty-three plus million, and I think it's going to eighty-seven million next year. And you know what, most teams, and that's the thing about the cap. When the cap came in. Um, you know, there's a few teams that were at their peak, but now everybody's almost at the cap. The pressure in the community is is to be at the cap. So, no, I, it doesn't, you know, spending money today is different because everybody spends the same amount, essentially. You know, ninety, as I say, 95% of the teams are probably at the cap. And, you know, that. so it, it's changed a lot. Like, I remember when I was in Columbus, in our first year, we had a $17 million payroll, and we were playing Detroit Red Wings, who had a $77 million payroll. And we had to play them eight times a season, and I'm thinking, like, seriously, this is torture. So today that's gone by the wayside because of the draft, but the teams, the rich teams do, in fact, have it easier to buy guys out. They really do, They, they be because they can come up with the funds i would hate to see what it would be like going to mr mcconnell my the original owner of the blue jackets and saying hey i need 20 million to buy out x player i would not like that conversation trust me i would not like it so so the other thing i heard recently i heard don taylor actually complain about this on his program um that the connects seem to be trading draft picks to get good players now um do you think that's a good idea? I mean, in light of the theme of the book and, and how important the draft is. Um, well, look, yeah, that, that's that's a great point. And, I, you know, I did a chapter in the book that typically you don't win the Stanley Cup, and history has shown this. I went back as far as 90 or 95 mm-hmm. and showed that every, almost every Stanley Cup winner had at least 10 of their own draft picks on the team. So it does show the value and importance of the draft. And you don't have to look any further than the Vancouver Canucks. And you say, okay, just a minute. Why are they good this year? Demko in goal is, is, is playing like a star. Pedersen is playing like a star. Quinn Hughes is playing like a star. And what are they? They're all draft picks. They're high draft picks. And you know what? If, if you're trading away especially high picks, uh, you're asking for trouble. And you, teams do it if they're very close to winning a championship. I don't have a problem with that, you know, making a deal on a draft pick that, that puts you over the top or gives you a better chance to win the Stanley Cup. But I'll tell you, over the long term, uh, draft picks are the key to 
almost every franchise. You look at L.A. Kings when they won the Cups. You look at the Chicago Blackhawks when they won multiple Cups. You look at Detroit's multiple Cups. You look at Jersey's multiple Cups. They all had 10, 12, 14 draft picks on their team. So the draft is still a critical part of building team success. The thing that we heard a lot about during um, uh, last, just before last season's last year's draft, when Connor Bernard was was the the big uh, draw there, was this idea of tanking. Uh, does it uh, a team tanking, losing um, games so that they get a, a I guess a higher draft pick? I guess a lottery prevents a team from from tanking. Does tanking still happen? Say. Oh yeah, tanking happens, and I talked in the book about you know. New, uh, Pittsburgh tanking, and it goes back to Jersey and Pittsburgh tanking over Lemieux uh, to get Mario Lemieux. It goes to tanking when they got Sid Crosby. It goes to Buffalo tanking, hoping they were going to get Connor McDavid and ended up losing the lottery. The lottery does prevent it from guaranteeing the success mm. because I'll never forget, and I put it in the book talking to Tim Murray when he lost the lottery in Edmonton got Connor McDavid and he got Jack Eichel and he was devastated. I said, hey, you got a heck of a player in Eichel. And he said, uh, yeah, I got a heck of a player in Eichel, but he's not even close to Connor McDavid. Well, Eichel's still pretty good. He won a cup last year in Vegas. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it really, teams do do it. And, of course, Gary Bettman denies it, but it does happen. The other fascinating thing about your book draft is that that you take us into what it's like that week, and 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 um, you illustrate some of the the interesting, sometimes bizarre interviews that happen between uh, a, a ma- the management and a player. Um, how important for you was character, and and I guess the the, the psychologist, the, the, those interviews, those were important as well for you, right? Yeah, the team psychologist was an important guy, and he he deals with the amateur scouts all year long, and and in particular at the draft. There's a lot of interviews and a lot of conversations, and pulling up the files of of the interviews that team psychologist does and the tests they do on players during the course of the year. Yeah, it becomes an important thing. There's there's no denying that. Um, you know, we made one selection. I'll never forget a kid out of Kelowna where. You know, we thought he was going to be a star, and I, I'll never forget the psychologist saying, hey, don't count on this guy. And you know what? He was 100% right. We we took this kid in the second round, and we never got him signed. And, um, you know, I accused another team of tampering to, to sign him, and he ended up not, never playing a game in the NHL. And this kid should have been a great NHL player, but never played a game. And it, it's hard to believe. So, yeah, look, the interviews – um, are important, but the, the the scouts interview the kids all year long. All year long, they talk to the kids. That's why the regional scouts are so important because they're sort of in tune with all the backgrounds of the kid. The psychologist does his testing. All the scouts get to know the kids as many as they can, as well as they can. But it is tough because you might see a kid play five or six times, and you've got to make a decision that he's going to be an NHL player. And, you know, you have to in, involve your whole staff. And, and uh, you know, now today the analytics part comes into play as well and helping the evaluation process. So it is comprehensive. And you know what? I, this is unreal. But if a GM is somewhere between 15 and 25% successful at the draft, he's had good drafts. 
Mm. That's hard to believe, yeah. but that's that's really what the success rate is. You mentioned Some guys get yeah. lucky. Yeah, you mentioned analytics. Does the analytics team and, and the the uh, the scouting team do they how do they work with one another? Or do they at all? Well, they didn't. They really didn't early on. It was like a it was really a competition. And and if you've seen the book Moneyball from baseball, you can see how the old scouts and what they thought of Billy Bean's Moneyball theory with the Oakland A's. And it translated into hockey. It's really been a battle between the analytics people and the and the and the scouting fraternity. But you know what? What I've discovered, and it was really hard to get people to talk about it. Nobody would be quoted on it other than Berkey and Rick Dudley and a couple of guys. Most people didn't want to talk about it, didn't want to be quoted on it because it's such a you know, a hot topic. But I, I've really found that since from the time I started to write the book till I finished the book that teams are doing a lot better job of having the analytics department and the hockey people really coexisting. And I think some teams have done a great job of it. And I think it's just a matter of appreciating both sides. And I, I think it's really growing in leaps and bounds. I happen to like the information they get from it, mm-hmm. and a lot of it has to do with the attitude of the analytics people and the attitude of the scouting people. So I think it's really coexisting much better, and it's become an important tool in the evaluation process. Yeah, you talk, there's a story in the book about a, a person on the analytics team who um, was not happy with the choice that a team made and was was quite vocal yeah. about it and pouting even. Um, yeah. that, that sort of stuff, I guess, doesn't really work, does it, in the NHL? No, it doesn't. And that, you know, I, I, it's funny because I talked to the assistant GM of that team, and he, he, he they tuned him up and said, hey, you will never be a big decision maker here. You, you give information, we use your information, but you'll never be a decision maker. So, you know what, but I think those days are, you know, you're going to get some of that, the same as you get a scout pouting. Look, I had lots of scouts out yeah. at the table because I didn't take their guy too, but it's just that it's always been, it's been a hot topic, hot button topic, and I think now it's it's really starting to, I think that both sides are growing together, and, and that's the way it really should be. How big are these scouting teams? I mean, when you were the GM, did you have guys in, in, in Russia, in, in certain countries in Europe, certainly in Canada and the United States? I mean, are, are, are the, the teams, that a, uh, the scouting team that a team has, are they, are they the same size all around, or, or, or does a does certain, well, certain... You know, most of them are very similar in size. You know, you can have an organization that would, would have more guys, but typically you've got three or four European guys. You know, you'll have a guy in Russia... Finland, uh, Russia, and then you might have a guy that does both Finland and Sweden. We had a guy in Russia, Sweden, and Finland were our were our three guys over there, and one guy sort of headed it up. And then you've got you know your four or five guys in Canada, and you get you know three or four in the U.S. Staffs have expanded a bit now, probably anywhere from ten to fifteen scouts on a in a in a, a scouting operation. And that's that junior at the junior level. Then you also have your pro scouts, and you know some guys could be responsible for U.S. college and so on. So different responsibilities. But scouting staffs have haven't grown tremendously, but 
people have added, you know, added to your analytics department. They've added to their scouting department, but not, not to a large extent. They're pretty similar to what they once were when I was there. Yeah. Back to the actual draft day. Um, as a GM, um, I'm fascinated when I when I see these on uh, on the news. Um, having the right names or the the right sweat, the right size sweaters, hats, even um, keeping it a secret. Generally, I mean, these things don't leak, do they? No, you, they really don't. And you know, but but what happens is you may have a half a dozen nameplates at your table, mm. you know, because you don't know who's going to be there when you make your selection, especially. You know, when you're in the top three or four, you have a pretty good idea where it's going to go. But if you're picking 20, if you have really, you've got your list and you go off that and you think who's going to be there in your range. But you may have three or four nameplates there and they just snap it on there really fast, secretly, so that you have the right nameplate on when you go up to make your selection. So, you know, it's kind of funny. And look, guys have gone up and announced the wrong name. We've seen that <laughs> on a couple of occasions. Yeah. We've seen the wrong pronunciations. We've seen, you know, so that's just the way way it goes. You know, it's you get so excited when you walk up on that stage with 20,000 people in the building, you know, mistakes are bound to happen. You're talking about Steve Eiserman and, and working with him when he was a player in Detroit. And then you mentioned him in relation to coaching um, uh, and and being uh, a member of management. Well, when you When you worked with him in Detroit, could you see – um, as a player, that he would have, say, the managerial skills for later on. He Stevie was a tough guy. I mean, I I really had a, a great relationship with him when I was a, a coach, you know, assistant coach, associate coach with Stevie, and and uh, he was a tough guy. He he had expectations for the team that were high. He had high expectations for himself. He played his tail off in games he gave it everything he had he was tough on his teammates uh he was you know but he but he was he was a guy that wanted to win really bad and had very high expectations and once once he became surrounded and all superstars need it they need support mm-hmm. and uh, it's no different with than Quinn Hughes and Pedersen when they get Peters when they get great support around them, they'll have a chance to become a Stanley Cup winner. So it's no different than Eisenman. In his early years, teenage, he started to play as a teenager. And listen, Stevie didn't win a cup until his 14th year in the NHL. Hmm. Hard to believe yeah. it was 14 years before he won his first Stanley Cup in the NHL. Most guys don't play that long. And Stevie, I believe, won three and he didn't win his first one until year 14. So you can imagine the tension and pressure. But he was an evaluator of players. Doesn't surprise me in the least he's become a, a, a top hockey guy. Yeah. Doesn't surprise me in the least. I reached you in Florida today. Uh, how often do you get back to PEI? Uh, we go to PEI in May, and, and we're there till October. So we spend, you know, seven months in Florida. Mm-hmm. And, you know, four and a half, five months in PEI, and uh, we love it. We love it. Do you miss being on the air? I miss the paycheck. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I had a ball. You know, I was uh, eight or ten years at Sportsnet. I was 24 years in the NHL, and 
10 years there. I mean, 34, 35 years earning a paycheck, either managing, coaching, or doing TV. I had a ball. I really had a ball. Uh, Nick Kiprios and the group were so much fun to work with. I still do a show with Kippy uh, every Friday in Toronto uh-huh. um, on, you know, on, on the TV and radio. So I, I do a half hour a week. So I do I miss it? I'm, I'm busy doing other things, but I, I had a ball. I've always wondered, you people that we see on television as an analyst, as a commentator, um, do you watch a hockey game differently than, say, a fan would? I mean, you're probably looking for different things than the rest of us, right? You know, because I coached and managed for so long, I I think I, and and a big part of my job for 20-some years in the NHL was, was scouting when I was an assistant coach, associate coach, or head coach, or a general manager, a big part of my job was watching games on TV from a scouting perspective, you know, whether it was to make trades or whether it was to draft or whatever it was. So I found as an analyst watching the game, yeah, I guess I looked for different things in a fan. I guess I was maybe more critical, a critical eye of, of a team and looked a little bit at their systems and how certain guys were playing. But Probably not a whole lot different from a lot of real good hockey fans. You know, I just, I just basically all I tried to do when I was on TV was tell it the way it was. Sometimes it pissed people off, but that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know? the, the, the great lesson in the book um, is um, how being a good person helps in pursuing a dream, say playing hockey. But, I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's not just hockey. It's life itself, isn't it? Yeah, it sure is. And I mean, I, I think about all the kids in my time in the NHL, uh, you know, the number of players. And I said in the book, like, I, I don't know if I've ever had a player that I didn't like as a person. I, I'm serious. I mean, they were terrific young guys. I still hear from guys today. I still run into guys from my old teams. And, you know, lots of them I didn't like the way they played some nights, but was very few that I didn't really like as people and yeah it's a it's a big part but it's not only the players it's the people you meet in the game and I and I always prided myself on trying to treat you know my staff and and players fairly and be honest with them and be a straight shooter so you know and it's not easy all the time it's not easy but that's what I tried to do. Doug, um, I wasn't going to ask this, but fans uh, of, of the Canucks that I know that are very close to me will, will uh, want to know what you think as to how the team will do this year. Um, do you have a sense well, that, look, in, in early November how it'll turn out? Say, look, I, I look. They had a really tough couple of years here, and you know some changes had to be made. I think Rick has really said Talkett has really set a good tone this year. Like he. He had to be hard on them a couple of days and, and tune up a few guys. But I think today he's got them on the same page. And as I mentioned, Demko uh, looks really, really good after a couple of uh, tough years where the teams weren't very good in front of him. Quinn Hughes has a chance to be a superstar in the league. Pedersen has a chance to be. I said it two or three years ago, I thought he was going to be the next dad soup. I, I, I liked him that much. So I, I like where the Canucks are. I think they have a chance to to make the playoffs, and especially with some of the teams with Calgary struggling and Edmonton struggling and Anaheim have been really good lately, but how long they'll keep it up, I think they've got a chance to make the playoffs. I, I really do. 
Doug, it's been such a pleasure speaking to you today. This is a, a draft day, such a great read. Uh, continued good luck with the book. I appreciate your time today. Well, I really appreciate the support, and uh, you know, hopefully, people in Vancouver will uh, will uh, give it a look, give it a read. And I, I again, I really appreciate your time and and your support of the book. Thank you. The book is called Draft Day: How Hockey Teams Pick Winners or Get Left Behind. It's published by Simon and Schuster. The book's author. Doug McLean, join me on the line from Delray Beach, Florida, in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Planta.